Well, at this time, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text today. We actually already read it. We're going to be looking at our reading from 1 Peter. So turn with me there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. First Peter 1, 3 through 9. Since we already read it once, we're not going to reread the whole thing. I'm just going to read verse 3. God's Word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's ask God to bless our time in His Word today. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed in your wisdom, in your truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. Empower now the preaching of your word that we might receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the liturgical season of Lent, a 40-day period in the Christian calendar dedicated to the spiritual disciplines of fasting and repentance. The season of Lent is a period of preparation. During this time, we focus on serious spiritual inventory as we anticipate the following season of celebration that begins at Easter, which we celebrated last week. For 40 days before Easter, we concentrate on repentance, putting our sins to death. And for 40 days after Easter, we concentrate on renewal, rising to walk in newness of life. 40 days repentance... 40 days renewal. Lent symbolizes the present evil age of a fallen world in which we take up our cross and deny ourselves. Easter symbolizes the new age, the age to come, in which we take up our new life and bear witness to God's new creation. This is why customarily we give up something for Lent, We give up something old for Lent, but then the custom we never practice that somehow got left behind is we're supposed to take up something new for Easter. You give up something for 40 days, you fast from something, but then for this next 40 days, as long as there's still white up here for the colors, you're supposed to take up something, do something new in your Christian life that you hadn't been doing before. Giving something up, taking something up. These are parabolic actions in our traditions. In other words, they tell a message. They preach a message. They are a signal to the world about the meaning and message of Christ. 
These two connected seasons of repentance in Lent, renewal in Easter, giving up and taking up, these two connected seasons are shaped like the life of Jesus. His journey to the cross and his subsequent resurrection are the pattern for this whole tradition in the Christian calendar. Jesus calls... Jesus' call to discipleship for us is a summons to take our place in this pattern, to enter this cosmic drama of redemption, to experience in the present age the powers of the age to come, and to bring new creation to the world around us. And so today, we begin a new sermon series For Lent, we looked at true repentance. And now for the season of Easter, we will look at the resurrected life. The resurrected life. This Easter season, we are going to study what the Bible teaches about the new birth. What does it mean to be born again? And what role does the new birth play in our Christian lives? So beginning today, that's what we're going to look at for the next few weeks together. And in our passage this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we learn that the new birth is the commencement of the Christian life. It is the sustaining cause of our genuine faith. It is the ground of obtaining the final salvation that we hope for. This passage kicks off our series with a complete overview, a very concise summary, but it is complete, an overview of the place of the new birth in the Christian life from the beginning to the end. So let's walk through what this passage has for us together. Peter begins with ringing praise to God for all that he is about to describe in this text. At the beginning of verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of the Lord, the Father of Jesus, is given full credit, full honor, full glory for all that follows in this text. And that means that this summary of the Christian life is God's work. It's God's doing. It's not our doing. He gets all the praise for what we're about to see. He gets it all. We claim none. And what is it that we see? Peter begins by describing the commencement of the Christian life, and he does so by connecting our new life with the resurrected life of Jesus. This is a crucial, all-important connection. Look at the rest of verse 3. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I want us to notice three things here in verse 3. First, Peter says, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. Your new life, Christian... Your new birth is the sole and singular work of God. 
God is the one who causes a person to be reborn. God is the one who is the giver of new life. This is not something you cause. It's not something you contribute to. It's not something you take part in. It's not something you help God bring about. And it's not something that you assist him to accomplish. God doesn't need our help to cause us to be born again. He doesn't even need our permission to cause us to be born again. And you know that because James chapter 1, verse 18, the verse that made me a Calvinist <laughs> at 17 years old, sitting in my room in high school, trying my best not to be a Calvinist, <laughs> Sick to my stomach when I read this verse. <laughs> James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will. I love the way we were told earlier, I didn't find God because God wasn't lost. <laughs> He found me when I wasn't looking for him. He found me. We don't need to give God special access to our sacred heart to cause us to be born again. We are not such unique flowers in God's garden. You know, as much as we respect and admire and appreciate Billy Graham... He wrote a book once with the title, How to Be Born Again. I thought, man, that's an unfortunate choice for a title. It should have been one page, blank. <laughs> How to do it. Five steps to making yourself a new creature. There's no such book. There's no such thing. No, the new birth is God's work and God's work alone. God's work alone. Because what is the new birth? The new birth, or being born again, is the granting of new spiritual life in your soul. The granting, the sovereign granting, causing, producing, bringing about of new spiritual life in the soul where before there was only spiritual death. It's the same sort of thing you see in John 12 when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Four days dead in the tomb, as the King James says, by now he stinketh. <laughs> he's already begun. He's room temperature. He's, he's already starting to decompose. Lazarus can't do anything. Lazarus can't say, hold on a minute, Jesus. He's dead. Spiritual corpses in living bodies. That's what we are before we're born again. And what does God do? He calls us by name and he says, Wesley, come forth. And the dead man walked out of the tomb. That's the new birth. It's the same kind of thing that happened at Easter. That's why he connects it to the resurrection life of Jesus. He says that we were caused to be born again through the resurrection 
of Jesus. It's the granting of new spiritual life. It's nothing less than a spiritual resurrection. God alone has the power to do such a work. God alone has the power to find you dead in your sins and to raise you up to new life. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, corroborating what Peter says here in 1 Peter. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, it says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. He raised us up with him. He made us alive. And did you notice it said, out of his great mercy, the very thing Peter says, according to his great mercy. That's why we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, because he gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. We get all the grace. Never get that twisted. He gets the glory, and we get the grace. We don't contribute. We just receive. That's gospel good news. And how does God cause us to be born again? Well, Peter tells us at the end of chapter 1 in verses 23 to 25, Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And at the end of verse 25, he says, This word is the good news, the gospel. That was preached to you. The gospel, hearing it read, hearing it preached, seeing it lived out, having it touch your life in some way, shape, or form. It's that word that brings us forth. The word, in other words, is an instrumental cause. It's the thing God uses, the instrument in his hands that he uses and empowers to bring about the new birth. It's through the Word. I said there were three things to notice in this text. That's the first. He caused us to be born again. The second thing to notice here, just to underline it for us, is the connection to the resurrection, the Easter connection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter says, He caused us to be born again through the resurrection. As Paul just said in Ephesians 2, we have been raised with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. If the word of the gospel is the instrumental cause, it's the resurrection of Jesus that is the material cause. The instrument in God's hands that he uses to give new life is the gospel. But the thing he gives when he gives us new life is the resurrection life of Jesus. He takes Jesus' new life and he uses the gospel and he takes that resurrection life and imparts it to you. You get to share in new resurrection, age to come, eternal life, and you get to experience it in part right now and one day in full. When God causes us to be born again, he does so by imparting that resurrection life of Jesus to us and gives us a share in his resurrection. 
He raises us spiritually from the dead. The commencement of the Christian life is your soul coming out of the tomb just as truly as Jesus' body came out of the tomb. When you are born again, it's a repeat of Easter. You get your own Easter moment. (laughs) You are brought forth. New life is there. You're coming out of your tomb. And that's just a foretaste of what is to come. The day you got saved was resurrection day. It was an Easter day for you. The third and final thing to notice about verse 3 here is that it says, We were born again to a living hope. There in verse 3. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. When you are born again, Christian, you come into a new spiritual world. You are alive with the life of Christ. You have the hope of eternal life, the hope of living forever, the hope of obtaining final salvation in your own physical resurrection from your own tomb. What Jesus starts in your soul, he'll finish at his return with your body. This is not a dead hope. This is a living hope, a hope that animates you, a hope that sustains you, a hope that fills you with confidence and security and assurance because it cannot fail you. As Peter goes on to say in verse 4, we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Amazing. A hope that cannot perish, that cannot fade, that cannot be defiled. A glorious inheritance of salvation that is headed your way. You have it in your soul now. You'll have it even in your body. One day, the inheritance is being kept, preserved, It's on hold, ready to be received at the last day. At this point, moving from verse 4 into verse 5, Peter transitions from the commencement of the Christian life, coming out of the tomb in the new birth, to the Christian life itself. This is what he says in verse 5. He just said, we've been caused to be born again to this living hope, to an inheritance. And then verse 5 says, who, referring to us, by God's power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a very concise summary of the Christian life, one of the shortest in the Bible which he goes on to describe in more detail as the passage unfolds. So notice what he says here. He says that three things. He says we are guarded, number one, guarded by God's power. Why is this a living hope? How is this our living hope, this inheritance that we've been born to inherit, born to receive as an heir? Why is it a living hope and not a dead hope that's going to fail us in the end? It's because we now, you now, are being guarded by God's power. Thank goodness it's not up to me to hold on. 
It doesn't mean I'm inactive. It doesn't mean I just sit back and Jesus take the wheel and let go and let God and just coast and float. Doesn't mean I'm not in it doesn't mean that I'm inactive or passive or lazy or apathetic. It just means that the power I need to be active in the Christian life isn't mine. It's God's. That He's the one who has the power to guard and keep, protect and preserve, so that we can persevere. We do it in His strength, not our own, regarded by His power. Second, we are guarded through faith. So the bottom line thing you're supposed to do in the Christian life is trust Him. It's to put your faith in Him, to trust in His power, in His strength, in His ability to guard and keep you. That's where the hope comes from, that He has the ability to guard and keep and protect, and we have the responsibility to rest and receive that power, and then in that power, get up and go and live the Christian life. We're guarded by His power. We're guarded through faith, through trusting in Him. And then third here in this verse, we live our lives trusting in God's guarding power as we journey on towards that inheritance, the final salvation that will come at the end. God is guarding, we are trusting, and in that guarding power and through faith, we then live, we then live, journeying on day by day and step by step towards the inheritance, the final salvation that will come at the end. This is the life of someone who has been born again. But Peter is quick to remind us in the next verses... This life, this new life, comes with challenges. Living a resurrected life in a fallen world that's still dead in sin is a tremendous test of our faith. If you imagine some of these zombie apocalypse shows that are out there, these movies, right? There's everybody's alive and then tons of people are, you know, infected or die or get bit or eaten or whatever, but they become zombies. Now you have, it's a world where living people are dealing with all these zombies. And it's like the zombies are the, are the weird ones and the living people are the, that's how it's supposed to be. Okay, well now Christianity, just flip it around, all right? Everybody's a zombie and a few of us have come to life. And we're the normal ones and they want to eat us. <laughs> all right, it's going to come with challenges. Needless to say, we're with people, people we love and know and work with that are, you know, decent and nice because they, you know, they're from a decent and nice country and probably had decent parents or upbringing or whatever, and they're, you know, pay their taxes and they're polite or whatever, and, you know, but spiritually, they're dead. They're dead. It's, their soul is a corpse in a living body. They're spiritually dead. And we have been brought to life, and now we're living in this dead, fallen world as these resurrected people. We are people from the future. We are people from the new heavens and new earth who have somehow been dropped in the middle of the old earth, the old age. And we're living an age-to-come kind of life in this old age. And there's conflict, and there's challenges. This is why in First Peter he'll say, we are a peculiar people, a strange people, sojourners and exiles from some far-off land. We are citizens of heaven who are still crawling around in an unredeemed, 
fallen world. And it comes with challenges. It comes with a tremendous test to our faith, as Peter says in verse 6. He speaks about this inheritance that we have, this salvation that's ready to be revealed. And he says, in this, in this living hope that we have, verse 6, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. First Peter was written to Christians who are going through a severe period of testing, who are going through their own trials, as he will get on to explain in the rest of the letter. This isn't a throwaway line. He's writing to people who are in the thick of it. These various trials, however, are meant by God to serve as faith's refinery. You know, a refinery, it's a machine that puts a substance through a purifying process. Removing the bad and refining the good. Peter says this is what suffering in this life is for. This is what suffering is in this life for the one who has been born again. It is faith's refinery. It is a purifying process. Various trials refine that new life that we have and prove that it's the genuine article. This is what he says in verse 7. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that. Here comes the purpose. And this is God's purpose. This isn't the devil's purpose. It's not our purpose. It's God's purpose. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Life in a fallen world is like a fire testing what is genuine and what is false. The pure always remains. The impure is always eventually consumed. And those who are truly born again, who have true, genuine, saving faith, who have a real living hope, they will endure the refining process and reach final salvation. And the rest will fall away. Paul says that everyone's work will be tested by fire, and those will suffer loss, and others will make it in, singed by the fire. There's a refining process. Life has a way of doing this, but it's not just life outside of the sovereignty of God. It's God is sovereign over all of life, and these testings come by order of His throne with good and holy purposes, working all things for good, purifying, purifying, refining. And what is good and true and genuine remains, and the rest is consumed. See then how valuable, Peter says, see how valuable it is to have a faith that is durable and that will last. He says it is more precious than gold that perishes, though it, the gold, is tested by fire. 
purified, perfect gold, he said, can't be compared to how precious genuine faith really is. Genuine faith, Christian, is the most precious commodity that you have because it's the one and only thing you can give to God on the last day that will bring praise, glory, and honor to you when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. Genuine faith of a born-again servant. There will be a day coming when Christ is revealed, when that genuine faith will give you access, not just into this grace in which we stand, as we prayed earlier, but into the riches of the Heavenly Father's eternal kingdom. Faith is the only way through that gate, the only token that will get you through. This is our living hope which we will inherit when Christ comes and He returns. This hope is living because it is grounded in the life of the living, risen Jesus. His resurrection secures and guarantees this hope for us. But this hope is also living because it animates us in our Christian lives. It isn't just a living hope. It's a hope for living. It is a hope that we live out in our lives. Peter concludes our passage today by describing what living your hope looks like in verses 8 and 9. He says, Though you have not seen Him, talking about Jesus, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, you trust Him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, we hear a lot today in our culture about living your truth. What's true for you, that's fine. What's true for me is what matters. And I'm just, I'm just living my truth. Well, here Peter says, forget living your truth. Live your hope. Live your hope, Christian. The born-again eyes of faith... The born-again eyes of faith behold the invisible Christ who will one day come again. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Even though you can't see Him now, you trust Him and you rejoice with glorious and inexpressible joy. And in that, you must live your hope. The born-again eyes of faith can see the invisible Christ. Christ who has not yet come. Faith is the anticipation, it's the foretaste in the present of that hope that will fully and finally be realized in God's future. This moves us, as the text says, to love Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to rejoice in Jesus. Sometimes we overcomplicate the Christian life. Now, there are complications, but sometimes it's as simple as just today, What am I called to do as a Christian? Love Jesus, trust Jesus, rejoice in Jesus. No matter what I'm doing, writing my grocery list, picking up the kids from whatever, driving my kid to this game, watching this, scrolling on my phone, going to work, chatting on the phone, texting my friend. It doesn't matter. Underneath all that, what am I doing today? I'm loving Jesus. I'm trusting in Him, and I'm rejoicing in Him. And that's something you can do even when life strips everything away from you. 
when you have nothing but darkness around you, you can still experience a miracle, a new birth kind of miracle where you still have this inexpressible joy down underneath the grief and the pain that is so real and severe because you know I have a living hope that God is in charge of, kept in heaven for me. I have come out of my tomb. I am alive once again, alive with the life of Christ. This is my living hope, and today, no matter what I do, I'm going to live my hope. I'm going to live in this hope. This hope gives me a glorious, inexpressible joy in the midst of the most severe trial. Why? Because every day we are, as he says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We are obtaining every day. Are you obtaining, Christian? Are you obtaining it? Are you walking in it? Are you experiencing the salvation that God has for you. We are living our hope of eternal life each day, rejoicing with each step on the way to our inheritance. That is a living hope that is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, ready to be revealed in the last time, that we taste now by faith and we will have in full when Christ returns. That's what the new birth is all about. It kicks off this process, it sustains it, and it culminates in eternal life in our own future resurrection in God's new world. This Easter season, Christian, let us walk fully in our resurrected life and live our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word to bring us forth to new life. We thank you that you have caused us to be born again, that you have raised us up with Christ, and that you fill us with his spirit and you give us his resurrection life to go and live, to be guarded by your power and to live in this hope. We pray that as we experience the trials of life that come our way, that you would indeed sustain us and that we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would put our hope fully in you, the one who started a good work in us and who will be faithful to see it all the way through, to bring it to completion for your great glory and for our eternal good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.